So we're putting away our Christmas decorations a few days ago, and Amy's got three or four, you know, big Tupperware boxes out on the floor, we're pulling ornaments off the tree, we're pulling stockings down, all that stuff. You probably have done some of the same thing. And one of the boxes is just getting full and more full and full. It's like fuller by the second. And at some point I said, okay, babe, can I, can I lock that up, take it downstairs, put the lid on? She goes, oh, no, not yet. Uh, there's still a few more things that need to go in there. Like, what do you mean a few more things need to go in there? That thing is full of like holly and mistletoe and Christmas cheer and whatever else. Like it's full. There's nothing else that's going to go in there. And sure enough, there's one more thing and two more things and three more things. And she's arranging and moving around and more and more and more goes in there. And it's just stuffed to the absolute max. I'm going, there's no more Christmas decorations that could fit in this box. This is just chock full. And she snaps the lid on and says, here you go. And I took it down to the basement. This is Romans chapter one, one through seven. Paul has stuffed so much into the box that is verses one through seven. You're going to see it in a minute. It is full to the brim. You might go, oh my gosh, I never knew that so much theology and so much truth could fit in seven verses. So remember where we've come from last week. Paul uh, is a couple of things. One, he's Jewish through and through. Uh, Second, he is zealous for his Jewish faith. That is to say that he's looking to purify the nation of Israel from those who are maybe not following the law as strictly as he would like them to. Makes sense that he's a persecutor of Christians, this new way, this new iteration of Judaism. So that makes sense. But then Paul is transformed on the road to Damascus. Jesus appears to him calls him his own and Paul repents and turns and begins to follow Jesus as the Messiah of Israel. And finally, Paul is experienced. Remember, he's been on the road for 25 years as a missionary. He's in his early 50s now. He's at a friend's house, a guy named Gaius in a city called Corinth, and he's dictating this letter to Tertius and he's writing to the church at Rome. Now, the letter starts off just like any letter of antiquity, any letter of this time and place. There's an introduction of self and an address to his readers. And this is kind of what would be normative for any letter. But in order to kind of get our heads wrapped around what's about to happen at the introduction to Romans, I want to read for you just three introductions of other Pauline letters. This is how he introduces his letter to the church at Ephesus. He says, Paul, an apostle of Christ Jesus, by the will of God, uh, to all the saints who are in Ephesus and the faithful faithful in Christ Jesus, grace grace to you and peace from God, our Father and the Lord Jesus Christ. There you go. Uh, 1 Timothy 1, 1 and 2, Paul, an apostle of Christ Jesus, by command of God, our Savior, and Christ Jesus, our hope, to Timothy, my true child in the faith, grace, mercy, and peace from God the Father and Christ Jesus, our Lord. Okay, Uh, in the letter to the church at Philippi, he and Timothy write that one together. He says this, Paul and Timothy, servants of Christ Jesus, to all the saints in Christ Jesus who are at Philippi with the overseers and deacons, grace to you and peace from God our Father and the Lord Jesus Christ. You see, introduction of self addressed to the readers. Easy peasy, very, very simple. Now let's take a look at Romans chapter one, verses one through seven. Paul a servant of Christ Jesus called to be an apostle set apart for the gospel of God, which he promised beforehand through his prophets in the Holy Scriptures concerning his son, 
who descended from David according to the flesh and was declared to be the Son of God in power according to the Spirit of holiness by His resurrection from the dead, Jesus Christ our Lord, through whom we have received grace and apostleship to bring about the obedience of faith for the sake of His name among all the nations, including you who are called to belong to Christ Jesus, to all those in Rome who are loved by God and called to be saints, grace to you and peace from God our Father and the Lord Jesus Christ. Can you feel it? He's just jamming as much as he can possibly fit into this introduction to his letter to the church at Rome. I'm so excited to unpack this scripture with you today. And here's what I would like to do. I'd like to do a couple of things. One, I want to break this passage up phrase by phrase. And as, you, as we do that together, I would encourage you to make those marks in your own Bible if you've got a physical Bible in front of you. Also, it's a great tool for when you're studying scripture on your own in any book to just kind of break it up phrase by phrase. We're going to do that. Then second, we're going to interpret each of those phrases, make some observations, talk about the original Greek, uh, talk about what Paul is doing here. Third, I'm going to offer you the NLT. It's the New Lucas translation uh, based on the original Greek and on the observations we're going to make together today. And then finally, fourth, I'm just going to offer you a couple of implications for your life that come from these principles in Romans chapter 1, verses 1 through 7. So, Let's get started. We're going to break it up phrase by phrase. Paul writes this. Paul, a servant of Christ Jesus, called to be an apostle, set apart for the gospel of God, which he promised beforehand through his prophets in the Holy Scriptures concerning his son, who descended from David according to the flesh and was declared to be the son of God in power according to the spirit of holiness by his resurrection from the dead, Jesus Christ, our Lord, through whom we have received grace and apostleship in order to bring about the obedience of faith for the sake of his name among all the nations, including you who are called to belong to Jesus Christ. To those in Rome who are loved by God, and called to be saints, grace to you and peace from God our Father and the Lord Jesus Christ. All righty, we've broke it up phrase by phrase. Now let's start to pick it apart. Very first thing that Paul does is he introduces himself. And Paul wants us to know three things about himself. One, he's a servant. Two, he is sent. And three, he is set apart. Now, those points are up here on the screen, but if you're jotting down notes, jot those three things down. Paul is a servant, he is sent, and he is set apart. The very first thing Paul does in the original language is he says, Paulos doulos, Christos Jesus. He says, Paul, servant, Christ Jesus. And this word here, servant, in the original Greek is the word doulos, D-O-U-L-O-S, which is a transliteration of it. And it's translated servant here in the English Standard Version. You may have another version in front of you. It's translated bond servant. But those words really don't capture the nature and the heart of the word. The word is slave. A doulos was owned. 
A doulos was the property of a master. Now, it's really, really, really important that we don't superimpose our modern definitions of slavery or kind of 18th, 19th century United States slavery or whatever. We don't superimpose those definitions over the top of first century Roman slavery. They're very, very different. In fact, if you were a servant of the king or a doulos of the king, that was, a, that was an honorary title. But regardless, uh, the same thing in first century Rome as would be now, uh, Paul saw himself as being owned by, possessed by Jesus. He says, this is my identity. The very first thing I want you to know about me, Paulos Dulos, that is who I am. I am a slave, a servant of Christ Jesus. The second thing I want you to know is that I'm an apostolos. That word is uh, apostle, translated apostle, but it really means uh, literally sent one. So Paul is talking now about his vocation. He's, he's talked to us about his identity. This is who he is. And second, it's what he's charged to do. So he's now been purchased as a slave by Jesus and now sent to do something. Next phrase, he is set apart for the gospel of God. And this is very, very interesting because in the original language, this word set apart, translated there, set apart, it means sever, it means uh, kind of put aside. It's also interesting because this Greek word set apart is the root word for the word Pharisee. Isn't that interesting? So if you don't know this, Saul or Paul, before he was Paul, was Saul the Pharisee. And Pharisees were those who adhered closely, the most closely, just strictly to the Jewish law. That was Saul. He was, in regards to the law, a Pharisee, he would save himself in his letter to the Philippian church. And so now he's not set apart to the law, but he's set apart, what? For the gospel of God. Isn't that Interesting that he sees himself that way. This word gospel is a compound word of two Greek words. It's euangelion. The, the first uh, kind of part of it means good and angelion means herald. So if you were uh, a general in a battle and the battle was being waged on the front lines, what they would send back to you was an angeloi, a herald, someone to come back and tell you what was going on at the front lines of the battle. So Paul is saying this is euangelion. It's good news. I am heralding good news. And it's a little bit confusing in the translation here because it says gospel of God, but in the original Greek, this word is possessive. And so it might be kind of better translated as God's gospel. So Paul, a servant of Christ Jesus, called to be an apostle, set apart for God's good news, which he promised beforehand. This phrase here is all one word in the original language. It's that God has been doing this for a while, and he promised beforehand this good news through his prophets in the Holy Scripture. Paul mentions two things here, prophets and holy scriptures. Now, here's the deal. It's important that we don't get caught up in the specifics, like what prophets and what holy scriptures. What Paul is telling us is that God's been doing this good news thing for a very long time. 
Now, Paul's understanding of the good news of the gospel does not exist in a vacuum. It's located squarely within the context of what theologians would call redemptive history. That is to say, God has been moving toward this Jesus moment for a long time. So now Paul is going to unpack this concept in much more detail as his letter goes on. But what we need to know is that the prophets and holy scriptures have been pointing to this Messiah moment for a long time. God promised beforehand this Messiah through his prophets and the Holy Scriptures. And so when Paul understands Jesus as this Messiah, or in the Greek, Christos, when he understands him as such, he's already got a little bit of a shape of what he understands Jesus Messiah to be. And I want to kind of just note three things. The nation of Israel was expecting this Messiah and they were expecting this Messiah to be three things. First, they were expecting the Messiah to be a new king. You may have heard this before that they were expecting the Messiah to kind of overthrow this oppressive Roman Empire, which of course Jesus did not, but they were expecting a new king. Second, they were expecting a new world order. They were expecting a revolution whereby the nation of Israel would be liberated and the world would be completely transformed. And finally, they expected a new community to kind of rise out of this. This is what the nation of Israel had been expecting for a while. So when Paul says that he's set apart for the gospel of God, which he promised beforehand through his prophets in the Holy Scriptures, he's saying this is the good news that God's been talking about for a while, that there's a new king, a new world order, and new community coming. I want to just really hammer this point because it's so important for us to understand. I was talking to a friend this week who's a Muslim background believer, and he was talking about the nature of Islam and that this is very, very different from uh, the Muslim faith or from any other faith. This is not God just kind of dropping knowledge on somebody out of the blue. This is God interacting with human history for a very long time, so much so that N.T. Wright would write this. He says, there is no suggestion that Paul had embraced a religion, quotes are his, by the way, different from the one he had previously pursued. Let me say that again. There is no suggestion that Paul had embraced a religion different than the one he had previously pursued. There's no suggestion that up to this point, he had supposed that in order to get to heaven, one had to please Israel's God by performing good moral works and that he was... uh, now offering an easier way. That is to say, you just have to believe. Both of these suggestions, widely popular in Western thought over the last few centuries, are simply anachronistic. That is not how Jews or pagans of the time were thinking, and it certainly isn't how Paul's mind worked. Here's what N.T. Wright says. For Paul, what mattered was that Israel's God, the creator of the world, had done in Jesus the thing he had always promised, fulfilling the ancient narrative that went back to Abraham and David of bringing a new king, a new world order, and new community. Okay, so we now know what that good news is. Now let's talk about the who. Well, it's concerning his son, isn't it? It's concerning his son. 
And Paul says a couple of things about this son, Jesus. One is that he descended from David according to the flesh. This word here in the original Greek is sperma. I'm not going to tell you what word we get in English from this word. It's not quite as biological and technical in the original language. It simply means from the uh, lineage of David or from the line of David. But he descended from David according to the flesh. What Paul is highlighting here for us is two things. One is that Jesus was fully human. He was fully human. Second, he's highlighting for us that Jesus is a rightful heir or the rightful heir to the Davidic throne. We're going to get into, as we study through the book of Romans, more and more of what that means. But from the outset, uh, Paul is already pointing to this idea that Jesus is the rightful heir to the Davidic throne. Think of it this way. We're about to hear a symphony of 16 chapters of the good news. And what Paul is already doing here is he's playing some of the notes and some of the riffs, just little pieces of them. So we start to hear them at the beginning overture of the symphony so that we can recognize them as the symphony goes on. So he's descended from David according to the flesh and was declared to be the son of God in power. Now, I love this word declared in the original language. It's where we get our modern English word horizon. In other words, Jesus was horizoned to be the son of God. Well, what, Luke, what does that mean? Well, think about the horizon. The horizon is the place where there is a clear and definite marking between earth and sky. So here's what Paul is saying. Jesus was clearly marked out. The Son was clearly marked out to be the Son of God, divine. So now he's affirmed Jesus' humanity, and he's saying he was clearly marked out to be the Son of God. He did not elevate to become the Son of God, but it was made clear that he already was the Son of God. Do you get it? I hope so. By two things. One, according to the spirit of holiness and by his resurrection from the dead. Now, this phrase, uh, according to the spirit of holiness, is a very interesting phrase in the original language. It's a little bit difficult to translate. And different Bible scholars, uh, Orthodox, modern scholars, have different views on this. R. Kent Hughes, uh, who you don't need to know, uh, argues that this means that Jesus lived a perfect life internally. So that is to say, his spirit was holy internally, and his perfect life clearly declared him to be the son of God. There are other Bible scholars, a guy named Doug Moo and F.F. Bruce, that argue that what's happening here is that Paul is indicating that there were kind of two stages of existence for Jesus. First is his existence in the flesh. Second, post-resurrection, his glorified and exalted body. This is the translation or the, um, the interpretation that I myself would affirm, that Jesus was declared the Son of God, powerfully so, by his resurrection, ascension, and glorification into heaven, that the Spirit of God, and that would be a, a Greek idiom to refer to the Spirit of God, Accomplished. So the first thing Paul says, number one, is that Jesus was declared to be the Son of God according to his exaltation and his spiritual exaltation. Second, he was declared to be the Son of God by what? 
Yeah, this is the event, right? This is, this is the thing. This is the entire Christian life is built on this idea. I love this. Uh, a, a guy named uh, Robert Mounts, who uh, is a Bible scholar, writes this about the resurrection. He said, had Jesus not risen from the dead, he would be remembered today only as a Jewish moralist who had some inflated ideas about his own relationship to God and made a number of ridiculous demands on those who wanted to be his disciples. He's absolutely right. If he had not raised from the dead, but because of the resurrection, he was declared to be the son of God in power. And now he's Jesus Christ, our Lord. This is his name. This is his title. He is like Kermit the Frog. Kermit the Frog is not Kermit Frog. It's Kermit the Frog. So he is Jesus the Christ. That's his title. And then our Lord, Kyrios, uh, in the original language. And here's the deal. Paul is connecting this word, Kyrios, all the way back up here with this word, doulos, because a doulos always has a Kyrios a Lord, a master. So here's where we come from. Paul, a servant of Christ Jesus, called to be an apostle, set apart for the gospel of God, which he promised beforehand through his prophets in the Holy Scriptures, concerning his son, who descended from David according to the flesh, and was declared to be the Son of God in power according to the Spirit of holiness. You see Paul connecting these two by using the same phrase, according to, according to, in both places. And he was uh, declared to be the son of God in power, according to the spirit of holiness, by his resurrection from the dead, Jesus Christ, our Lord, through whom we, and when Paul says we here, he's not talking about you yet. He's not talking about the church at Rome yet. He's talking about I and my colleagues, my co-laborers, namely Peter and John and the other apostles. And we have received, look at the first thing he says, grace. Grace. He's not talking yet about his office or his vocation. That's apostleship. We already know this word, apostolos, sent one. The first thing he says is, by his grace, I've received apostleship. In other words, Paul sees himself primarily as a recipient of God's unending favor of God's unconditional love, of his covenant in the uh, Hebrew language, a word that Paul would have been very familiar with, chesed. God's never stopping, never giving up, always and forever pursuing unrelenting love. That's his grace. And I have received that grace. And now I have received the charge to be an apostle to do what? It's not just for the sake of it. You've received grace and apostleship to bring about the obedience of faith, the obedience of faith. It's an interesting way to kind of phrase that, isn't it? It's not something that we would say typically, obedience of faith, but the reality is it's probably a very close, not probably, it is a very close literal translation of that phrase. And so I want to tell you a story about kind of how uh, I arrived at a little bit of the understanding for me uh, of this phrase, obedience of faith. On Mondays, uh, we do what's called a preaching collaboration. We've got five, six, seven people that get on a Zoom call. We read the passage. We talk about it. We make observations. We pray. We read it again. We talk about it. We make observations. We pray. And 
This is the passage that we talked about this past Monday. And one of my friends that's on the call, a guy named Arsam, is a Muslim background believer originally from Iran. And in the middle of talking about this kind of awkward phrase, obedience of faith, what is that? Arsam asked this very critical question. He said, is there an obedience of something else? Is there an obedience of something else? And I thought, well, yeah, of course there is. Because you, you know how I know that? Because I'm a dad. <laughs> so there's an obedience that I like to bring about in my children through fear. Hey, you better. Right? An obedience that comes from the possibility of reward. There's an obedience that maybe comes because of your history, your culture, tradition. Obedience that comes out of a desire to be perfect. Obedience that comes in order to win approval. Obedience that, become, that comes out of obligation or pressure or guilt. And see, Paul says, what I'm trying to do here is bring about an obedience that comes from a radical trust in God. I do what he says because I trust that he loves me, that he has my best interest in mind, that I am a recipient of his grace. See, that's different, isn't it? Paul is not collapsing these two terms and saying that obedience and faith are the same thing, nor is Paul saying that obedience is a necessary kind of secondary prerequisite for salvation. You give your faith and then your obedience and then you receive grace or salvation. No, 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 no. He's saying when we fully trust God, we will do what he says, which parent, is this not the way you want your kids to obey? not out of fear, obligation, or guilt, or whatever, but because they trust that you've got something better in mind for them. Kaya, please put down your markers, babe. Why, Dad? Why would I obey you? Because we're going sledding. And if you disobey me and you keep your markers in your hand and you keep coloring, you're going to miss out on something you really love. See, that's the obedience that comes from trust, that comes from faith. Tim Keller writes this about that phrase. He says, um, obedience flows out of faith. It's a consequence of saving faith, not a second condition for salvation. So this is why Paul has received grace and apostleship to bring about the obedience of faith. And now we're going to ask again why. For the sake of his name, for the sake of his name, in the original uh, kind of first century Hebrew mindset and even pre-first century Hebrew mindset, a name is just not a moniker whereby you get someone's attention. Hey, Sally, hey, Jeremy, hey, Joe, whatever. A name represents someone's entire character, all of who they are. So uh, it, we might be able to translate this to bring about the obedience of faith for the sake of God's character, for the sake of God's gracious, loving Character, not just for the sake of, you know, so we could write his name on a flag and run it up the flagpole and say, hey, everybody, this is God, this is Jesus. No, so that all of the nations, right, among all of the nations, globally, worldwide. So this obedience of faith is for the sake of his character now worldwide. And now, now that Paul has talked about himself, now that Paul has talked about the gospel and where it came from and he's begun to unpack it, now he's going to turn his eyes and turn his address to his audience. And now he says, including you. There we go. 
including you. Now he's talking to the church at Rome and consequently he's talking to you too. And he says, including you who are called, who are called and you are called to belong. Man, isn't that cool? Isn't that cool? The very first thing that Paul wants you to know about yourself is that God has called you to belong to him. You are his cherished possession. You are part of his family. You and I, much like Paul, are a doulos of the king. You're called to belong to Jesus Christ. And he says, to all those in Rome who are loved by God. <laughs> oh man, how good is that? How good is that? Because uh, you might be reading a translation that says to all those in Rome who are beloved. And that would be a good translation as well, who are beloved. See, this is, this is where I think kind of the rubber meets the road for a lot of Christians. Because a lot of Christians think that the critical thing that God wants them to do is obey. Yeah, Let, we're going to grow beyond that. We're going to grow beyond that because God, God wants something more than that, something different than that even. Okay, God wants me to love him. Great. God wants me to love him. Yeah, yeah, it's even dip, deeper than that though and richer. God wants me to know that I'm loved by him. God wants me to see my identity as a cherished possession, as a child of God. So Paul says here, you're called to belong, you're loved by God, and you're called to be saints. We forgot a word here. That's okay. I'll put it in there. Called to be saints. This word is hagios. It means set apart. It means different. Once again, Paul is saying that he is set apart and you are set apart. You are not called because you're a saint. You're a saint because you're called. And then he does this really interesting little trick that Paul has done over and over again in many of his letters. And before I tell you the trick, I want to tell you why he does the trick. Prior to Paul writing this letter, there was an edict that was sent out from the Roman emperor that said, I want all the Jews out of Rome. So all the Jews left Rome. Why? Because there were riots and uprisings and different things going on in the nation of Israel. And the Roman emperor wanted to squash that. So what happened was the church in Rome became exclusively Gentile just because that's who was there. Non-Jews from a non-Jewish background. So there were non-Jewish practices going on, non-Jewish diets going on, uh, non-Jewish worship going on. The Gentiles are now the leaders in the church. Well, then that emperor died and with him, the edict died. So now many of those Jews who had converted to Christianity or accepted Jesus now as the Messiah returned to Rome. So you could see now where there would be a rift, right? An ethnic divide, a, a racial divide, a religious divide in this church at Rome where Jews have now returned to find their church kind of run by Gentiles. And so what Paul does is he takes a traditional Greek greeting, grace. And he combines it with a traditional Hebrew greeting, shalom. He writes it in the Greek, but that word is shalom, it's peace. And he combines them together so that he's addressing Jews and Gentiles together, reminding them that they are one in Christ. Isn't that cool what he's doing there? 
Do you see how he's even starting to pursue racial reconciliation by addressing them as a group and using the language of those groups in those greetings? Man, our world needs racial reconciliation today. We're going to talk about that in a minute. And he says, grace to you and peace from God, our father and the Lord Jesus Christ. Here's what Paul wants you to know about you. You are called to belong. You are loved by God. You are called to be a saint and you are the recipient of God's grace and peace. So here we go. Based on the observations that we've made, based on the original Greek text, here is the NLT, the New Lucas translation, to really help it kind of saturate your heart and soul and make an impression on you. Let me read it. We'll apply it and be done. Paul, slave to Christ Jesus, called in order to be sent and set apart for God's good news that he promised through his prophets and holy scriptures. That good news is concerning his son who came from David's lineage and was powerfully confirmed as divine by his exaltation and his resurrection from the dead. He is Jesus, promised one, the Lord. Through him, I and my co-laborers have received grace and have been designated as his messengers to the non-Jewish world so that all would obey God because they trust him. And then as a result, God's character would be known worldwide. And our audience includes you. To everyone at Rome who are God's cherished possession, grace to you and peace from Father God and the Lord Jesus Christ. What are the implications here from what we've learned uh, in these first seven verses of Romans? One, I would ask you this. Do you know who God is? Do you know who God is? I've heard it said before that the most important thing about you is who you believe God to be. The most important thing about you is what you believe about God. Look back at these first couple of verses. Do you see that Paul is a servant? He's called as an apostle and he's set apart for God's good news. Do you see that all of those things are things that God did? That was God's initiative. That was not Paul's choice. His identity, his vocation, his life mission, all in context of God's extraordinary grace that called him to apostleship. There is nothing here that Paul did. This is all things God did for Paul. And his identity is firmly located within the context of God's extraordinary grace. If I could just communicate one thing to you, if one thing could take just a little more root in your soul today, if one seed could be planted, it would be this, that the Lord, the Lord is gracious and compassionate, slow to anger and abounding in steadfast love. I read one commentator this week that God's grace, it's not an uneasy truce. He does not rattle the sword every time you do something kind of outside of his will. God in his grace has poured out love and compassion and called Paul and called you unto himself. And my hope and prayer for you is that you would see your own identity and mission in the world within the context of a knowledge of God. Number two, do you know who Jesus is? 
I think it's interesting, especially modern Christians, we think of Jesus, you know, coming in a manger and that was the kind of the inauguration and the start of God's good news and God's redemptive plan. The reality is it's not. Jesus came in a specific time and place in order to be the redeemer for all people in all places and times. Let me say that again. Jesus came in a specific time and place in order to be the redeemer for all people in all times and places. And so in order to understand who Jesus is, we have to understand this specific time and place. We have to understand that God promised this beforehand, that he's been doing this thing for a while. This good news, his good news that he wants us to know comes out of a Jewish understanding of who the Messiah is, namely that he's a king, establishing a new world order and new community. And so for us, our response now, knowing that Jesus is that Messiah, is that we declare and affirm that Jesus is king. He has set up a new world order and we are his community. And if we understand that about Jesus, it shapes who we are. Number three, do you know who you are? Do you know who God is? Do you know who Jesus is? Do you know who you are? And so for so many of us, if I said, who are you? You might say your name, you might say your vocation. What if, what if the answer to that question, who are you, is I am loved by God. And and that wasn't just something that we said, but it was something that we knew and felt deep inside of us that I am beloved of God. And what that means, I love, I've heard somebody say this before, it just means be loved, you just receive it. Totally changes your outlook on life, the way you see yourself, the way you see others. You are extraordinarily and extravagantly loved by God. Number three, sorry, number four. Do you know who we are? So do you know who God is? Do you know who Jesus is? Do you know who you are? And do you know who we are? We come from different backgrounds. We are different ages. We are different races, a lot of different races and ethnicities, by the way, speak different languages, but we are all one in Christ Jesus. That's why Paul can say to Jews and Gentiles, grace to you and peace. I'm addressing all of you as unity and men and women of God, our world needs reconciliation and unity perhaps now more than ever before. And the church has got to be the beacon of hope now. The church has got to be the beacon of hope. When we begin to understand ourselves in the way that Paul is communicating here, as we are a unit, a whole, a group of people who are beloved of God and charged to create new community for the sake of his glory and name and character among the nations. So I would remind you of those things today. Do you know who God is? Do you know who Jesus is? Do you know who you are? And do you know who we are? May the word of God permeate your heart, penetrate your soul today and change you as it did Paul. Let's pray. God, thank you that there is not a wasted word in Romans. We said it last week, but uh, today I think in many ways proves it. Thank you, God, that we can get so much out of just seven verses. We are grateful that you have decided to inspire individuals to write down your word. You decided that 2,000 years ago and that we can read it today and know and experience this truth that it is living and active and sharper than any two-edged sword can pierce and divide even soul and spirit, joints and marrow and judge the thoughts and attitudes of the heart. God, may we be transformed and reminded that we are your cherished possession today. 
In Jesus' name, God's people said, amen.